Welcome to EVY, the e-mobility podcast that asks the bigger and better questions of the EV industry. Hello and welcome back to the EVY podcast, the e-mobility podcast series that dives deep into the e-mobility sector. I'm your host, Abe Thomas, and every week I'll be talking to experts in the field to understand more on the what, the how, and crucially the why people are involved in the industry. Today's episode is all about the crucial topic of fleets. With over half of new road-going vehicles purchased by fleets, their influence on the automotive market is huge. And today we're asking the question, why is transitioning fleets to EV essential for transport decarbonisation? Particularly pertinent today in the UK, with the government having released its transport decarbonisation plan this July, with a commitment to transfer all of the government's 40,000 strong fleet to zero emissions vehicles. To help answer that question, I'd like to introduce our guest speakers for today. Firstly, from EY, David Borland. David is EY's UK and Ireland automotive leader with extensive experience in the space, having worked across the value chain at OEMs, suppliers and dealers. And our featured guest is Dr. Russell Fowler, Senior Project Manager for Decarbonisation of Transport at National Grid. Russell works across all areas of transport from EVs to aviation. David, Russell, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us today. To start off, I'd like to ask you both why you're in the e-mobility sector. David, what drew you into this area? Thank you, Aidan. It's great to talk to you and Russell today. Um, So you mentioned already that I've spent most of my career working in the automotive sector, either at manufacturers, uh, suppliers or dealers. And a few years ago, I had the chance to kind of think about what I wanted my next step to be in my career. And I was actually thinking of moving it away from the automotive industry. I kind of checked myself a little bit and thought, now is actually probably the, the perfect storm of the times to be in the industry. It's so interesting with everything that was happening before the pandemic, pre-COVID, with changes toward connected vehicles, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and shared mobility. Um, and I just thought, actually, no, this is a really good time to be in, to stay in the industry, to work in the industry, and to move into the e-mobility space as well. So hopefully leveraging some experience that I have, but moving into a, you know, a brave new world in terms of what the future holds for all of us. Thank you very much indeed, David. And just a quick follow-up question. Was the sustainability narrative one that particularly interested you in your decision to remain in the automotive sector? I think sustainability was was one of them, for sure. I think the combination of probably sustainability, uh, technology, and how important that's becoming as well in the world that we live today and in business. So probably a factor of a few things coming together, Aid. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for those opening opening thoughts and, and some insights into your thinking. Um, Russell, over to you. Russell, what about you? What what brought you into this sector? Thanks. That's um, a great question. I've been thinking about this, um, listening to that, and I, I'm a academic kind of by the start of my career. So I, I have a degree in, in mathematics and the doctor you referred to earlier is from a PhD in maths. So I came from a very a- analytical side. So my first roles were in the energy industry rather than the automotive industry. And I was interested in kind of forecasting energy demand. So first of all, at the short term, so what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, the next week, and increasingly became interested in the kind of the longer term. So not just how we use energy, how do we buy energy? Where does energy come from? So interested on the supply side of it as well. So um, I found myself at, at National Grid after a few kind of uh, earlier careers in other energy uh, companies and say became interested in kind of longer term forecasts. So National Grid produce 
a set of forecastle scenarios called future energy scenarios. I was very, very involved in them, very interesting. And one area that particularly took my interest was electric vehicles. I saw these projections going along and then they would shoot up in the 2020s and 2030s. And I thought that's really interesting and that's going to really change how how we move ourselves and how we move move things around uh, the country itself. So I want to kind of get more involved in that. And a couple of years ago, the opportunity came to uh, join Greg Cooper's team, who's heads up our work here at um, National Grid, looking at transport decarbonisation. So I've been looking at that since um, the start of 2020. As you said, I look at everything from electric vehicles, particularly interested in the rapid charging side of it. This is where National Grid can play a real direct role in what we do, but say across all types of transport, rail, other heavier goods vehicles, so HEVs particularly pertinent after the transport decarbonisation plan that we've just seen, all the way up to maritime and aviation. Russell, thanks very much indeed. I mean, so many interesting inflection points at the moment, a 100-year transition in both the energy and transport sectors. As you've outlined, David, some incredible new technologies as we transition over from ICE to EV, taking us neatly onto the subject in hand of fleets and the fleet transition. So going back over to the the question in hand around fleets, um, we begin every one of these podcasts with a question from our audience. And uh, the question, perhaps slightly contentiously for a fleets discussion, is the Climate Change Committee advice suggests we should not be replacing internal combustion engines with EVs like for like. They ask what other innovations and solutions should fleets look at to reduce volume as well as emissions? Um, David, what's your take on that question? Yeah, it's a great question. It's very interesting and one I've heard uh, more than once in the past as well. I think I'd probably uh, answer it to begin with in two parts. The first part would be we need to think about the needs people have for movement of themselves and their family and friends, so the movement of people, and then also the movement of goods, obviously, where a lot of fleet vehicles are used. And I think what's happened through the pandemic, it's obviously changed a lot of our mobility habits and our transportation needs. So I think the first thing would really be we really need to evaluate why we need fleets and how we use fleets. So that would be the first one. And then secondly, I think in terms of solutions to solve that challenge of, of the movement of people and goods, I think it would also then be thinking about the types of solutions we need. Electric vehicles, electric trucks are one solution, but they're not the only solution. So I think there are different technologies that can and should be explored as well with different use cases that solve different challenges. Thank you very much indeed, David. And uh, Russell, what will be your take on that on that question? Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. So it's the way we look at this in, in terms of fleet is making sure that you've got the right type of fleet. And if, if it is electric or something else, that you've got the kind of infrastructure to support that as well. So if you're thinking, well, I'm going to move my car fleet to EVs, even if it's not your whole fleet to EVs, you're going to need some some infrastructure to support that. So can we get the investment in that infrastructure, whether that's at your depot or whether that's on route as well? So just making sure it's the infrastructure in the right place as well. And then if you take a step back, if we're thinking on to goods in heavier goods as well, thinking, well, actually, what is my solution look like? We talk about electric, but sometimes we, we often think there are other solutions out there. Hydrogen is the one that becomes obvious. What, where does hydrogen infrastructure need to be? Am I going to do that at my depot? Am I going to look for hydrogen kind of refueling en route? Or am I going to look at it a dedicated hub a little bit like you have with 
petrol and diesel at the moment. Um, it's also important kind of how you refuel or recharge those vehicles in particular as well. So if we're talking about infrastructure, making sure that there's smart charges in there. We hear a lot about smart charging for kind of domestic vehicles. So people will come home and they'll charge their vehicles overnight. Let's make sure if you've got fleets coming to there, that the vehicles that they do have, they're charged smart way. So if you can charge your fleets overnight, that's great. If you can't charge them overnight, have you got the tools to be able to manage that? on site without making it overly expensive for yourself in terms of the energy that you use and in terms of the grid infrastructure uh, that you require there. So I, mean, I, I agree with that. How we move in people and goods around is clearly going to change. But however you look at it, you're going to need infrastructure to support that. Let's make sure that we've got that kind of right infrastructure investment at the right place and at the right time. Thanks, Russell. I mean, you, you mentioned bikes in there and there's a, there's a category of EVs that's often overlooked in this conversation, which I think makes uh, the answer to the question slightly uh, less tricky, which is the, the e-bike. You know, that's a, a category that is actually the largest uh, volume of sales of any EV category and um, is a very, very good sustainable zero emissions form of transport. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed for those opening gambits both. Um, just to uh, say uh, we uh, ask uh, for listener questions for every episode, so please do send in yours to evsummit at green.tv. We'll be delighted to include any further listener questions on additional podcasts in the series. But uh, moving on now to um, the main debate. Um, so this question that we've asked from our audience leads very neatly into today's topic. We're talking about fleets and exploring why transitioning fleets to EV is so essential for transport decarbonisation. David, I'll hand over to you first. Could, could you give us your take on you know, why, EV, why EV is such a crucial piece in the shift to zero emissions transport? I guess to begin with, I'd start off with thinking about the size of the fleet of fleet vehicles that we have uh, in, in the UK and around the world. We look at this from a European perspective. We did a study earlier in the year, and you mentioned earlier that roughly 50% of cars sold or vehicles sold are fleet. Uh, that is absolutely the case. But what happens is a lot of those fleet vehicles end up back into consumers' hands. So after a few years of fleet usage, they'll find their way back through the used car market and into end consumers. The overall car park of fleet vehicles from a European perspective is about 20%. So 20% of the cars on the road are from a fleet. And then secondly, if we now think about the amount of miles that those 20% of vehicles travel, that's about 40% of overall miles traveled. And in terms of emissions, those 40% of vehicle miles traveled are producing 50% of the emissions. So the significance and the importance of fleet is disproportionate to the number of vehicles we have on the road as well. So that's why we think if we can make a change around the emissions from fleet vehicles, we can make a very significant dent in the emissions that we produce on transportation. Super interesting points. What, what is it then about fleet drivers in particular that makes them such polluting drivers? Uh, what's going on there? Well, I, I guess if you think about, the, think about a typical car that you or I or Russell would drive, typical statistics, that vehicle, our own vehicles could be sat on a driveway or in a car park for 95% of the day. So the utilisation of those vehicles is very, very low. If you think about how companies are using their fleet vehicles, one of the key measures they have is, is utilisation to try and sweat those assets as much as they possibly can. So therefore, they're on the road way much more than any cars that, uh, that we would have from a consumer perspective. And that's part of the challenge. Russell, any, anything to, to pitch in from your side around the points that David raises there? Yeah, I agree with what David said, certainly on the emission side of it. I, I would add in also the kind of the air quality point as well. So transport obviously is a disproportionate amount of 
air quality, uh, nitrous oxide in particular. We've seen that. We've seen kind of local areas kind of been in breach of their uh, commitments. There. So it's really important to us a national grid that we have a clean air there as well. And if, if you think about the fleet, if you think about, let's say we're moving to an electric fleet, I appreciate there is hydrogen and there are other vehicles there. But if we use that as a good example, uh, we, we know we're going to need renewable energy to supply that. And we know we're getting more and more renewable power as well. But you, so you have a little kind of, I've got quite a symbiotic relationship there. So the electric vehicles, they need renewable power, but that renewable power is helped by having electric vehicles. David mentioned that a lot of vehicles are plugged in at the time. So fleets will be plugged in, not move in less than your, your, your normal domestic vehicle will, sure, but there'll be times when they're not there. And that can kind of help balance the system. So these renewables, when it's windy and when it's sunny, you charge up your vehicles. When it's not windy, when it's not sunny, you don't so, and you can help manage the system well. So actually, there's a comes a symbiotic relationship, if you like, between the energy sector decarbonising and the economy generally decarbonising, and the improvement in air quality, and you get a kind of virtuous circle starting to to, to develop there. And uh, National Grid, just to uh, to mention that our, our own fleet. So by 2030, we've committed that to be alternatively fueled, and, and we use that wording quite precisely. So for obviously for cars, for company cars, for people that drive around, electric vehicle will make sense. But we obviously have to be mindful of heavier vehicles again. Hydrogen may be the better uh, fuel for them, or you may be looking for synthetic fuels or some kind of biofuels to be able to get to your larger plant vehicles as well. You can imagine some of the work the national grid is on quite remote sites there, so it's maybe difficult. Ironically, we're building out the network, so there's no network to plug a, a vehicle in there. So we do look across all, all types of fuel there, but all of those vehicles will help reduce emissions, as David said, and all of them will help contribute towards air quality improvements as well. Russell, you, you work in the energy sector as well as the transport sector, and we're talking about decarbonisation as well as fleets. Um, maybe a question for both of you. You know, Do you see indicators that um, new EV fleet buyers are also using renewable energy in their mix? Is that is that part of things as you, as you see it unfolding at the moment? And if not, how can we make it so? Uh, yes, I think you see. So if your fleet's moving to electric, again, let's use that example. It would make sense to try and make sure your energy supply is from renewable power. Um, again, if you drop back into the domestic setting, most people are aware that you can pick up a, a tariff where you have a renewable uh, commitment. So 100% renewables, they are very common out there as well. And you can get that in the commercial setting as well. Obviously, depending on the size of your operation, depends on what you can do there. So you can get kind of PPAs in agreement with solars and wind developers as well there to make sure you've got your kind of renewable energy. If you are larger or, or interested in more investment, we are certainly seeing solar investments are very popular by the sides of, of, of people putting in EV charging because you think you've got the infrastructure there. So one of the advantages of energy infrastructure is electric vehicles take power out, as we talked about, but also the, the renewables can put power in as well. So you can help balance your own system there. You can also add batteries to your SEP as well to really help manage your system to make sure that you're you're using the renewable power if you generate that on site as well. So you're absolutely seeing more of that. And I always say smart charging again, if you can do that, that helps um, the system kind of more generally make better use of renewables. So if you're efficiently charging your feet, that makes the whole system use renewables kind of more efficiently than they are at the, at the moment. David, any thoughts on this on this subject area? Yeah, I, I guess in terms of uh, the switch to renewables. So if we just think about what the manufacturers are doing, so they're obviously bringing products to the market with zero emissions, low emissions. So that's the first the first piece of the puzzle, I think, because the, a lot of the regulation is driven around tailpipe emissions. I think where it needs to go a little bit further is focusing on the life cycle analysis. So that's extending 
what the impact is to emissions all the way down the value chain. You know, if you start from a factory where you're building the vehicle, but go down into where the components and the products are coming from, all the way down to batteries that are now being developed and being built in gigafactories, where are they getting their minerals from? Uh, so mineral extraction into chemicals, into cells and packs, and then finally batteries and vehicles. We need to look at the whole chain and we need to look at everything and every aspect of it in terms of reducing emissions. And I think the, the other aspect to this would be a lot of the manufacturers are obviously very, very intensive users of energy. Uh, so they are making their own moves on you know, switching over to renewables to run their own facilities as well, whether that's the manufacturing facilities, uh, but also their office locations, warehouses, etc. Do you see in your customer conversations, David, this inclusion of full life cycle analysis, the, this full sustainability narrative as being something that progressive fleet buyers are looking at? I think there's not enough at the moment, Aid, from what I've seen. Uh, I think some some companies, some clients are looking at this for sure, um, but they're, they're kind of breaking new ground. You know, what, one thing that we're seeing in this whole transition is we're having to work across sectors more than we ever have before. We're having to go to places that we've never worked before. And I think it's, it's just kind of like I'm peeling an onion. We've got to peel the onion, find out something we didn't understand before, and we need to keep going to the next step. Um, so I think it started, Aid, but I think we've got a lot to do. And I think that should really be the focus. And you know, thinking about the policymakers as well, maybe for them to consider that rather than just tailpipe emissions. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, a, there's so much change going on in the sector at the moment. You know, a fleet buyer is being asked questions today, the like of which she or he wouldn't have even dreamed of being asked just a few short years ago, right? So uh, a whole lot of uh, exciting new ideas to take on board. Moving on then, um, David, um, what, what do you think is driving sustainability at large? What's going on in that wider narrative around sustainability and fleet buyers? So I guess, it, I mean, there's the obvious conversation around what's important to us, all of us as individuals in terms of, you know, the roles we have in life and the, I guess, the, the legacy that we're leaving for our children and our children's children and the impact that we're all having on the planet. So I think, you know, emissions plays a, a large role in that, but I think everybody now is much more conscious and aware of what that means to all of us individually than we were maybe five years ago. I think that for me is probably the most important factor, how we're considering and addressing this much more as individuals and how it affects our own lives. Thanks very much indeed for that. I mean, so zooming, we zoomed out to the big picture, so zooming into some of the nuts and bolts questions um, you know, that fleet buyers are considering in their transition to EV. What, um, what do you see is interesting in that transition in terms of total cost of ownership or indeed total savings ownership with EVs having lower costs across maintenance, fuel, spare parts? What, 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 how, how can we positively sell into fleet buyers the idea that going over to EV is the way to go? So I'll, I can take that first, uh, if that's okay, Russell. I think a lot of the things you've just mentioned then, uh, Aid. I think that there's a lot that we need to do uh, which is still around communication. So awareness, communication, understanding. Uh, total cost of ownership is something that's understood by, by many in the fleet world because that's how they've um, run their business for, for many years, focusing on the, the total cost. But as an end consumer, that's not something we looked at. And a lot of people are still focused on the significant uh, price increases that you'd have on buying a vehicle, uh, buying an electric vehicle versus a combustion engine vehicle. So I think in general, there's an awareness and an education that still needs to happen, less so with fleet, uh, with fleet and with fleet buyers. I think the thing that's important as well with fleets is because the nature of the size of the fleet, you mentioned earlier that uh, the UK government having a fleet of 40,000 vehicles they need to transition. It's the purchasing power that the fleets have rather than buying ones or twos or tens or twenties of vehicles. 
the fleets that have significant amounts of vehicles that need to transition and they need to manage that, I think that's where uh, they can make a difference as well in terms of leading the way and showing the way. Mm, I'm totally, I mean, it's, it's exciting to see some of the big players in the university sector making a commitment to transition their, their fleets over to EV. We've had UK government with the decarbonisation transport plan announced that its 40,000 strong fleet will go over ABB and obviously a leading engineering force globally have announced that their employee base will transition over. That's a 10,000 strong fleet available for people to uh, to think about that one. Um, Russell, what, what's going on in the in the national grid space in terms of this uh, some of these pointy end questions around um, communicating and educating fleet buyers around the transition to e-mobility? Yeah, obviously looking at this from, from the other end, from the infrastructure end. So it's great to see the commitments. You mentioned the government. There's lots of other companies and ourselves included that are committed there. So it's one thing always to make sure that uh, fleet bars are kind of aware of the kind of infrastructure requirements that are required there. So let's again use the example because it's an easy one to think about. So if you're moving to electric, so what do you need in terms of charge point provision? So if you're a fleet and you have a depot, what do you need? Are you going to be charging your vehicles overnight? Are you going to have very high utilizations of vehicles? Do you need to put kind of rapid charges in there? Are your vehicles returning to base so they can go out and one charge, can they come back or they're going across country? So are you then going to need to think about, I need a public charging network, which public charging network should I use? How do I access that as well? So again, all those infrastructure things, if people think about them in kind of a holistic way. So if all fleets think about them, then that kind of multiplies up to the bigger infrastructure. So what's supporting behind that? So yes, it's important that you get your charge point into your depot, but if we take a look what happens behind the scenes, let's think about that infrastructure that goes on uh, behind. So how do we get that wire to your depot? How do we get that big wire to your small wire to your depot? If, if that makes sense, talking about uh, what we do at National Grid and making sure all those renewables hook up as well. Again, I'll beat the drum again for um, smart charging there as well to say, well, let's make sure that we can charge those vehicles sensibly as well. So that infrastructure you put in is economically as efficient as possible there. Also saying in, in terms of fleet, there's the, then the ability to start to play in the energy market. Suddenly you've become an energy consumer far more than you did before for your, for your building. So property will manage their energy uh, really well. But suddenly you've got a battery, lots and lots of potential batteries sitting on your uh, on your forequarter or your depot or wherever it may be. There's opportunity to offer services to the IV or local grid in terms of balancing. We talked about charging up when the renewables are in the system and then um, uh, maybe discharging even so the vehicle to grid. So actually, could you have your batteries discharging back onto the energy system as well when it's maybe not sunny or not windy as well? So there's lots of potential opportunities for fleet managers then to become kind of energy procurement as well. So they need to start to work with their energy um, procurement teams as well to, to make the kind of full use of that. So suddenly another revenue stream has become available to the uh, fleets when they're parked up as well to really uh, I think, David, you mentioned earlier about kind of sweating that assets as well. So when they're packed up, can we even start to sweat the assets there by offering services to the grid? I was going to ask you about hydrogen and, and biofuel vehicles. We're, we're all getting very excited. And perhaps this podcast and this conversation has uh, majored on on EVs and e-mobility. But uh, David, what are your thoughts um, from an EY perspective on the hydrogen biofuel fleet mix? Yeah, so I think it's like many things. There's, there's not one size fits all, and I don't think there'll be one answer to everything. There are so many different permutations, different use cases, different needs that people have. Um, and the, the way, I guess, if you think about the bookends of the spectrum at the moment, so you could think about just a small passenger car um, that will move to, or and already is moving to an electric vehicle, and then you go all the way up through SUVs, into trucks, into commercial vehicles, into heavy goods. And I think the other end, the other bookend, and the other end of the spectrum would therefore be 
um, probably hydrogen. That's probably the use case at the with the larger vehicles. But there are so many things in between that. And you know, you could think about a heavy goods vehicle that is doing last mile delivery. Well, that's moved. That was considered to be probably a hydrogen use case previously. That's now absolutely moving much more towards a battery use case because of the the niche use it has. Uh, and I think there'll be everything in between. So I think there'll be general trends that satisfy different types of vehicles. Uh, but I think the specific use cases will um, will make it a little bit more complex and one size fits all or even two size fits all. Thanks so much indeed, David. Um, Russell's mentioned a little bit about um, National Grid's fleet commitment. I don't wish to put you and put EY too much on the spot, but what can you tell us about um, EY's commitment to transition its own fleet over to zero emissions vehicles? Yeah, you're not putting us on the spot at all, Aid. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, so unsurprisingly, it's something uh, clearly we're working on. We're, we're very active on this at the moment. We, we're not in a position where we can declare something publicly, but from a, from a global perspective. But what we have seen, uh, our colleagues in Belgium, uh, they have publicly committed, uh, that was announced a couple of months ago, that they are transitioning their fleet of vehicles. And what I can say is that we're actively working on that with other markets and uh, other countries as well. So sorry, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but to maybe to put you on the spot a little bit, is, are you saying that that Belgian model uh, will will transition over to other country offices in the EY world? I, I think what, what we're doing at the moment is I think what most people are, are doing. We're, we're testing, we're learning, uh, we're trying to find out what is the, the, I wouldn't say the best solution because I don't think there is best. I think there are better, uh, better solutions. So we're, we're learning and we'll adapt and then we'll take that to other markets. I think there's a very strong career opportunity for you in politics, if ever you should decide <laughs> to go in that direction, David. A very good, a very a very political answer. Um, David, what, anything else you'd like to contribute? We can always learn from what's gone before. And so clearly what, what's most, a lot of fleet users are using commercial vehicles and, and heavier goods vehicles. That's not as advanced from a product perspective as passenger cars. So I think we can learn from what's happened with passenger cars. Um, what we see at the moment is the availability is still not there for commercial vehicles, but it's absolutely coming. And I think it's really understanding in terms of seeing the trends and what's happening with pricing of vehicles that on passenger cars, it clearly is dropping. We will get to that tipping point where you get equity in terms of um, parity, sorry, in terms of the pricing. If you're thinking about it from a total cost of ownership perspective, it obviously happens quicker. So I think... Understanding that the products are coming, the manufacturers have all making very, very significant announcements in the last few months. So the products will be there. Uh, the prices will drop as we go through the decade. And I think for me, the, the, the bigger challenge, and I think this was recognized uh, in, the, in the, the announcements from governments in the last day or so, it's really about the need for infrastructure as well. And Russell mentioned this earlier. That for me is probably the, where we need a little bit more focus and a little bit more support. And I, frankly, I think it's a little bit more complex as well. Absolutely. Um, Russell, I, I know, you know, there's that, that question that you get asked perennially, can the grid cope with the huge rise in, in EVs? For those who haven't heard the national grid response to that question, would you mind outlining the answer to that one, please? Yes, we, we get that question a lot, whether the grid can cope. I think when when that question is asked, and we break it down into a couple of parts. So the first part is, can you get the energy to your, um, let's say, electric vehicles here, because it's a, it's a good uh, way to, to think about it. So Obviously, that energy, that electricity has got to be from renewable sources. And if you look in the detail of all the recent net zero announcements, there have been quite a lot of them. But if we go back to, I think it was around October, November, 
uh, where there was a 10 point plan. So Boris Johnson gave his 10 point plan and one of them was a commitment of offshore wind. That was a significant increase in that. So there was a commitment to 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. So that's only nine years away. And to put that into context, there's around 10 gigawatts today. So in the very simple terms, that's, that's where your energy is gonna come from an uptake in renewable energy. Now, of course, how are you going to get that renewable energy into um, your car? So, of course, those offshore wind farms need to be connected to the grid. And that's kind of partly our job to make sure that that happens economically and efficiently as possible. And of course, you then need to make sure that the charge point infrastructure is there. And if we touched on kind of rapid charge as well. So making sure rapid charging network is there at motorway service areas and at hubs and other places where it needs to be. So there's kind of two ends of the infrastructure that need to be done. And of course, there's going to be some infrastructure in the middle that's going to be needed to be upgraded to make sure you can get that power from the big wind uh, turbines right into people's cars. And that works on an energy point of view. Of course, one of the things you need to do is make sure that the, the supply and demand are managed. And, and we've talked about this, um, about that kind of symbiotic relationship, if you like, between wind and EV. So you need the renewable power from the offshore wind to be able to support electric cars. But because there is a choice about when you charge your electric car, you can charge it overnight. Uh, for example, you can even then charge when it's windy or when it's sunny. So your EV charging can align up to um, the kind of wind and um, weather conditions as well. So again, you get that symbiotic relationship as well. So renewables help electric vehicles and electric vehicles help renewables. So um, very briefly, that's how the grid will cope with that. Equally, we could replace electric vehicles that will say production of green hydrogen as well. Green hydrogen will need renewable power as well there. So whatever the fuel source, if you like, whether that's electricity or hydrogen, you, you can see a similar story playing out there. I know Graham Cooper uh, was, uh, was part of the government's uh, transport um, decarbonisation plan. I assume National Grid fed in some ideas around the introduction of smart charging for those very reasons. Is that, is that, is that right? Uh, yes, obviously, uh, Graham's been, been he heavily involved with that. I should also say our uh, system operator part of the business, the ESO, Electricity System Operator, is a legally separate part of the business. They fed in very heavy lead to that as well. They're responsible for balancing the system, so they will directly benefit from smart charging as well. But yeah, as you can imagine, uh, we have conversations with um, the Department of Energy and the Department of Transport as well, as do our, our system operator colleagues have absolutely been, been involved in that from, from kind of day one almost. Very good. Well, thank you very much indeed, both for those super sage insights into the subject of fleets and decarbonisation. Thank you very much indeed, David. Thank you, Russell, for joining us today to wrap up. Um, can I ask you both uh, what the next step that you would personally like to see in the fleets sector is? So I'd probably just offer one thought. Eh? We've touched on it quite a few times as we've been talking. Um, and I think what Russell's just done then is a great example of this. I think it's, I've touched on awareness and understanding. So awareness, communication, understanding and education, whether we're talking fleets or, or end consumers, that for me is vital. And I think if we can get that right, it's going to help this transition accelerate much better. What I would say is making sure that when people think of transport, they think of the kind of underlying energy infrastructure as well. We mentioned the symbiotic relationship. I'll, I'll, I'll have that probably as my, my final thought there that we need to think about the energy infrastructure is needed to support transport even more. And we need to think about it at the same time or ahead of where we're thinking about it. As I say, we can't 
we can't have our entire fleet of electric vehicles and no infrastructure to charge them. So we need to make sure we do that and, and fleet managers think about that and planners think about that and government think about that and energy industry and transport industry all kind of think about that together, working closer together. Well, you both referenced education there. And so hopefully in some small way, this EVY podcast on fleets and the whole series will help in that uh, education piece. So thank you very much indeed, both for joining us for such a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Aid. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Aid. Thank you, David. Really great conversations. Now, to end every episode, we will be highlighting an exciting and innovative hyper-fast growth company in the sector. Today, we have Carla Dittrieu, Director of Business Development at Volta Trucks, to tell us all about Volta's journey. Thank you so much indeed, Carla, for joining us. Thank you, Ed, uh, as ever, for giving me this, this opportunity to, to chat with you and kind of share my perspective and my experience. So what did you see in the, in the e-mobility sector in particular that really excited you? Obviously, such a such a big transition is is a great opportunity for companies, but also individuals. I think to flourish and develop themselves. There's nothing that has been done um, in the trucking industry at least. Uh, there's no set rules. You know, anything is possible. Um, so being in a team of very passionate people that want to make it happen is is really what you know attracted me. Um, again, you know, there's everything to be done. So uh, an amazing boulevard in front of us to, to develop ourselves. And, and in this section of the EVY podcast, we're looking at hyper fast growth companies of which Volta Trucks is certainly one. But I bet you didn't imagine it would be quite this dynamic when you entered into this sector just over a year ago now, did you or, or did you? I think uh, sometimes I get confused. I don't know if it feels like days or years because uh, this year has been High speed is is gentle. It, it's been nonstop. Uh, you know, customer traction, uh, engineering development. I've been you know involved in all kinds of discussions. We we're making something very big uh, from a small team, and we're scaling super quickly. So, you know, headcounts is is growing every month. So is our focus on new markets. And to give you an example, um, so we are conducting a a European roadshow and the way it started was, let's take the truck for a few days in Paris and see the reception. Next minute, we are going all across Europe uh, and the US as well, because the traction has been outstanding and we kind of made the most of it and thought, you know, there's this whole momentum, we need to make the most of it. So it went from a few days in Paris to a mega roadshow all across the world, which is, you know, kind of illustrating where where it starts and where it takes us. Very good. And so let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Volta Trucks um, business model specifically. I I know Volta has a number of core pillars to its work. Um, Tell us about Volta's core pillars, please. Sure. So the starting point is that we are are defined as an OEM, but we are so much more than just an OEM. Uh, We are bringing a solution to regulations that are flourishing all across the globe for low emission zones. So electrification is very much, you know, a starting point from a blank piece of sheet of paper. Sorry, we, we are able to redesign and conceptualize a truck, but we go again beyond just emissions. You know, there's, there's a very important problematic around safety in city centers that we are definitely trying to tackle as much as we can. So very much our ambition is to become the safest 
uh, OEM, both for drivers, but also for pedestrians and cyclists and any users. Um, because there, there's, there's a lack of acceptance when it comes to trucks in the city and we want to tackle this because, again, COVID has highlighted that we need trucks. We need uh, heavy supply and volume in our cities. And then the third one is very much the driver shortage. We are aware that this is a global problematic and by bringing a truck that gives the best experience to drivers that facilitate their daily tasks that is that are exhausting and dangerous we want to, to to give them the best work environment possible and also give operators a competitive advantage when it comes to recruiting and retaining the drivers we want to make basically drivers our ambassadors so creating a, a community yeah make a community of drivers and speak to them because we feel like OEMs aren't necessarily that we have we have two challenges we have the, the person sitting in the office that are our customers because they are signing signing the paperwork, basically. But the drivers are such an important workforce that we also need to speak to and, uh, and value. So, yeah, that's very much the, the three top pillars that are at the core of Voltem. Thanks very much indeed for those insights, Carla. And um, let's move on to have a chat about um, sustainability, which I know is a really, really key part of Voltem Truck's mission and indeed um, a major... Uh, thing that needs to be addressed across the the mobility space. Um, we understand that you know thirty percent of all CO two emissions come from heavy duty vehicles, according to the heavily respected transport body, Transport and Environment. Um, so, how important is that um, CO two emissions piece to Volta Trucks's mission? You know, I think there's there's two very simple ways to um, reduce emissions, uh, or you remove the amount of trucks that are on the road, or you change, uh, or you have an alternative uh, in terms of fuel. So we want to combine the both. So by bringing to market heavy goods vehicles that can remove small events, we can optimize workforce, optimize congestion. And again, with an electric vehicle, the, the goal, the ultimate goal is to remove CO2 emissions and particles and NOx uh, from the cities. So our customers are asking us, you know, how can we make this happen? Because they obviously work for retail, for very important or, or high uh, image uh, customers that also are putting pressure on them, saying, you know, we want to decarbonize our operations. Let's find solutions. So this is really how we want to help the whole ecosystem, because not only customers and cargo owners want this to happen. Um, we have all of the communities living in cities. Uh, all of the, the public administrations that want this to happen. So we're very much trying to involve everyone uh, in the discussion and educate them on the benefits of electric vehicles. And, and tell us a little bit more about um, how, as a startup, Volta Trucks is perhaps more, more uniquely positioned to deliver against some of these objectives than some of the historic OEMs. I think that the key differentiator or, or the disruption is first of all around the product. As you, you're very familiar with uh, with the Volta Zero, and and it's it's outstanding how unique it is compared to all of the solutions on the market. And and tackling again these three problematics that we mentioned before. Uh, then the disruption is around uh, the service associated to the vehicle. You know, we we don't only want to sell trucks 
we also want to provide the full suite of services and assets that our customers need to operate their vehicle. So the end goal is to provide on a subscription-based model the full suite um, for operation success. So one point of contact, one invoice, and one dashboard of data. This is very much how, where we see ourselves, and we see it as a rapid enabler um, to, to EVs because it tackles all question marks or anxieties that we can have linked to asset possession. And then, you know, disruption is also around maintenance, service, road assistance, and level of service. Uh, we, we want to be able to provide the, the, the best uh, service and a unique service and same service all across uh, a different market, which is kind of important to, to mention. We, we don't do the same business as uh, Historix OEMs because we are 100% targeted on one vehicle for a starting, as a starting point, but four, which is quite a, a small range, a small but very focused range. And some something that I hear regularly is around maintenance network. So how are you going to manage, you know, fleet deployment when you don't have an existing network? That's true. Uh, this is why we have a city by city rollout plan where we integrate the service network before we deploy the fleets. But this isn't a valuable answer when we use the existing old maintenance network as an advantage, because if your service network and your thousands of employees aren't trained and equipped on the technology that you're trying to develop, and you still have a full range of natural gas, um, diesel, and all of, all of these other fuels, it's very hard to penetrate a market as quickly as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and thanks very much indeed for that. Let's, let's finish off. You mentioned some of the points from your customers what, what are some of the some of the more positive points when customers get to understand the Volta trucks business model get to see the Volta zero what are what are some of the most exciting conversations you have around your customers vision for how the Volta trucks model and the Volta zero can deliver for them we have some uh, very creative uh, customers so uh, instead of you know, having real estate depots all across the city. I have the example of one customer that would like to use the Volta Zero as a mobile hub and then have uh, cargo bikes or e-scooters kind of picking and dispatching uh, for the very, very last mile, let's say last meter. So this is, you know, kind of creative business models that uh, are kind of flourishing. Uh, so, you know, the last mile industry is completely changing, I would say, and it's a challenge. But it's very exciting. And, you know, to answer your question, like you said, we are coming from a startup in a remote environment where we've been doing everything, you know, through 2D to taking on, you know, customers on this European roadshow and actually filling a product, uh, a fully developed demonstrator. And this completely triggers uh, engagement and people realize, okay, this is happening now. Um, so it's super, super exciting, super refreshing, and also meeting people in real life, face to face. Uh, it feels like we we kind of coming back to some sort of uh, normal. So very exciting. And it sounds it's like it's personally like very, very exciting for you as an, as an individual. It definitely is. Um, I, I often say I never thought I'd be in love or so passionate about a truck, uh, but I'm <laughs> I'm totally in love and um, and feeling blessed to be uh, to be part of of this mission and this incredible team. 
Well, Carla, I hope you and the Volta Zero have a very happy future together. <laughs> we will, certainly will. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us on Thank the you. EDY podcast. Bye-bye. So that's it for episode two of EVY. Thank you for joining us today. We've got four more episodes upcoming in the series, so please do subscribe to stay up to date with those. Please do keep sending in your questions and comments to our podcast contributors to evsummit at green.tv. And we'll see you back here for episode three.